Hello, London. Welcome to the program. It is your Monday afternoon edition of London Live. And Mike Stubbs, the wonderful Mike Stubbs, is on a couple of days of vacation. So you have me sitting in for him today and tomorrow. Don't worry, we will restore you to your normalcy of the lovely Mike Stubbs Wednesday through Friday of this week. But until then, as I said, you are stuck with me. I hope everyone had a lovely weekend. Uh, We had beautiful weather yesterday. Saturday was a bit hit and miss. It was a bit crazy out there with the storm that rumbled through. Thankfully, I missed most of it, so it was good. Uh, but yesterday, just absolutely gorgeous. And today, great weather again. It's so cheery to look outside and see blue skies, sunshine, some puffy clouds. It's good. I mean, it's a little cool. 11 degrees is uh, slightly on the milder side for, uh, what is it now, June the 3rd? I cannot believe we are into June. It just blows my mind. But there you have it. I mean, wedding season is uh, picking up. I have a bunch of stuff over the next couple of months that I'm going to bachelorette this weekend in Long Point. Then we've got showers and the weddings themselves. It's going to be a busy time. So when we get into June, that's what I start to think of. Going out, seeing your friends, enjoying the nice weather. It's great. I'm very excited for it. June is a good time. But today, there's been lots in the news that you might look at and think, oh, that's not so great. We've had uh, also some uplifting points as well, and we will get to those throughout the program. But uh, certainly off the bat, big news in London itself today, uh, news that broke on the Craig Needle show this morning. Dr. Chris Mackey with the uh, Middlesex London Health Unit, our medical officer of health, confirmed the news that the province is no longer looking to provide funding for our supervised consumption site that was proposed for 446 York Street. Yeah, not great news. Um And they've not really said why, just that they object to the location for some reason. So there's rumblings that 186 King, which is the temporary site, will the the province is open to that, staying permanently open. But, you know, there's a lot of complications that go along with that. It's not just you can't just snap your fingers and make it happen. Um, There's also no indication at this time that the other site, the other permanent site that's been proposed, which is on Simcoe Street, excuse me, Um, there's no indication that that is up for uh, debate or whatever. So that seems to be still going strong, but certainly not the best news to be hearing on a Monday in June. We don't want to hear this. I mean, it's it's upsetting for everyone who has worked so hard to make this project move forward uh, and, you know, has worked with the data and the evidence with the health unit, regional HIV AIDS connection. Craig Needles had uh, Dr. Mackey on this morning. Also, Brian Lester from regional HIV AIDS connection. Um, and joining me on the line now is uh, Councillor Elizabeth Pelosa, who also happens to be a member of the Middlesex London Health Unit Board. Uh, she's Ward 12 representative, and uh, she's here to talk with us a little bit more about what's going on and, and where we stand with the situation. Councillor Pelosa, thanks for taking the time to chat with us. I know you're on the road right now, so you're awfully busy, but thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So obviously we've had uh, some interesting news from back home while you're in Quebec uh, this week at uh, conferences. Uh, what was your reaction to first hearing about this decision from the province? We had uh, Dr. Chris Mackey on this morning talking with Craig Needles about this decision not to fund the location at uh, 446 York. I was surprised. Uh, currently, it seems to be a new change every couple of days. We say sometimes you're just waiting for the other shoe to drop. And certainly... London's experience in this as well as as well as many other places in Ontario. It seems I think your your point about uh, you know kind of waiting for for things to change every every couple of days it's pretty spot on. Uh, I think a lot of people felt like this this was wrapped up. We thought the bow was tied on the package that it was what kind of a done deal. Things were moving along well. It's a bit of a blindside. 
And certainly that site, a permanent site is definitely needed. I have toured the temporary site uh, on King Street. It's well used. People have been very respectful for of it. Um, the staff I spoke to have a great relationship with their clients. Just the space is too small. It was never intended for this purpose. The flow through traffic of how you move through the building uh, when you're using the services is crammed a little bit like hallways and side rooms, just trying to make things work. And certainly if we are staying put, there definitely will be renovations that need to be done to accommodate staff and the services that our clients need. Yeah, because it seems like, as as Dr. Mackey had, had said, that the province is potentially open to making that temporary site permanent. But as uh, you've raised great points there, that it, it was never meant to be permanent. And, uh, you know, the ideal solution was that location at 446 York that was uh, that was outlined. Um, any idea as to why this decision was made? It seems that we don't have an official word. They just don't like the location. Yeah, there was no official explanation given, at least. Not yet. Certainly there are always, um, as we've been aware of, people who have been lobbying against this, who doesn't like the location, um, despite the fact of how it scores our recommendations of where it would best be serviced to our, our residents of London. So waiting to see how things come out in the media as more things are discovered or if an explanation is given, because certainly you could just say no and leave it at that. Like They don't have to give us an answer as to the why. Which I think is so frustrating for people who have been intimately acquainted with this whole process uh, and have worked from the ground up on on making this a go. Uh, you know, you yourself not only a city councillor but also on uh, you know the board of health in terms of representation for the city. It's it must be incredibly frustrating to see all the lengths that have been gone to and then have this kind of roadblock pop up. And it definitely is, to your point, more cost too. Uh, being mindful of what hat I wear in what space. Uh, even for Londoners, you know, we finished a campaign not that long ago. Residents were very supportive of people getting help because these sites just aren't consumption sites. We're connecting people to medical care, addiction treatment, housing, and other social supports that they need. And they're vital. And then every time we look at a site, do a site plan, host our public participation meetings, it takes up time, staff time, and all that has a financial impact. And now if we need to go back again and start all over, it delays the process, but this is still taxpayer money to run all these processes and engagement and all the criteria we need for zoning applications. It's just, it's quite the circle where we seem to be stuck in at the moment. Certainly. And and even if we do move forward with the idea of making the temporary site permanent, I, I suppose that would involve a, that whole process of kind of starting over because the zoning would no longer be the same. It would be, we'd have to change it to permanent, right? So it, it does entail a lot of yeah. hoopla. It's still the zoning change, as you meant, mentioned more public participation, all the renos and the costs associated with those that we discussed. And before we can even start that process, will that landlord even let us stay? If they say no to our temporary and our permanent sites are being said no, like what are we going to do? And it's nice that they've also, at the province has asked us to apply for a mobile site, but we certainly still need a permanent one that people know where it's going to be. We're aiming for longer hours. Currently, it's just 10 to 4 operation that's hoping for a 12-hour day and what that's going to look like because the need is there and people are using it, which is wonderful that it's a safe place and they are coming to that area for help and service. 
Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the proof is in the pudding, right? I mean, the stats that have been put out by uh, regional HIV AIDS connection and also the health unit. I mean, the evidence is there to show that this service is being used uh, and the impact that it's having. You know, we talk about the overdoses that have been reversed by staff and it just it seems strange to throw up roadblocks to a process that is working. Certainly more hurdles, and as you mentioned, we're just leaving uh, six councillors for the Federation of Canadian Municipalities Conference, and we're meeting our colleagues from across the country in all kinds of sizes of cities and rural and urban areas, and certainly there's lots of conversations, and some of them were about safe consumption sites. You know, they've heard of London, because um, we're the first in the province, and it's like, how's it working? What do you see in the community? And it's like, what's the community feedback? Um, and now we're just leaving that that conference, and we have a hurdle now placed in front of us of what it's going to look like, how we're going to deal with it to ensure we still have good government relationships as we need money from all funders and open communication, but we still need to advocate for what we feel is best for Londoners. Well, speaking of that advocating, do you have any idea of like what the next steps are then? Like what happens now that we've got this news? It's going to be a lot of conversations um, on Dr. Mackey's part as our chief health officer of finding out how this is going to look, certainly seeing if the landlord will let this site stay or at least stay for the next year as everything comes in one-year funding cycles. Because even permanent, nothing's really permanent in government. We're, we're learning that your funding can be moved, rejostled, or you can be redirected um, with any of your budgets or your core mandates of what you're actually offering. Yeah, it's all very, it all feels very insecure. I don't like it. <laughs> As someone who's well, kind I, of yeah, a type yeah. A personality, I'd like to know. I do like secure facts. I'm very facts orientated and how fluid in this climate we have to be can be very off-putting that you think you have something nailed down and you were, it's no longer correct and you need to go a different direction immediately. Yeah, it certainly is an unsettled process, an unsettled time, if you will, in Ontario politics. And uh, Councillor Pelosa, thank you so much for your time today in talking about this situation. I very much appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Well, we need to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to stay on this topic. We're going to have a chat with Terence Kernahan. He's the new Democrat MPP for London North Centre. Get his thoughts on this latest development and uh, what's going on in the uh, provincial government and discussions at Queen's Park about this issue. We need to take a quick break. We'll be right back on London Live after this. Welcome back to the program. It is your Monday afternoon edition of London Live. Mike Stubbs is on vacation. I'm filling in, sitting on the other side of the booth from where I usually sit when I'm anchoring in the mornings with Jake Jeffrey. Today, we are talking about the big news in the city that uh, the province has announced that it's not going to fund the supervised consumption site that's been proposed for 446 York Street. That was going to be a permanent location there. It was one of two permanent spots in the city that was, uh, you know, that the city had put forward as uh, for applications for, for zoning and the rest of it. Uh, and word came down today from the Middlesex London Health Unit from uh, Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Chris Mackey, saying that uh, the province had given them word that that was no longer on the table, funding for 446 York Street. So we had a chance to talk to Ward 12 Councillor Elizabeth Pol- with the City of London. She's also a member of the um, Board of Health as a City Council representative. On the line now, though, with me is MPP, New Democrat MPP for London North Centre, Terence Kernahan. Terence, thanks so much for being here today. Much, yes. 
So we've had reaction from a number of community stakeholders over the, over the day. As I, as I mentioned, I've talked to uh, Elizabeth Pelosa. My colleague Craig Needles chatted with Dr. Mackey, also Brian Lester from Regional HIV AIDS Connection. Uh, what's your reaction to hearing this news? Well, it's shocking, and it's a movement backwards. London is in the middle of a serious opioid crisis, and the Ford government is just making things worse. We, London is the third uh, has the third highest rate of hospitalization in uh, for opioid poisoning in, in all of Canada, and quite frankly, the Ford government's changing uh, changing a decision that was made by London City Council makes absolutely no sense. He should not be interfering into these matters. It is a bit confusing in terms of uh, why now. <laughs> yeah. any, any indication uh, from from Queens Park, your time there, uh, as to why this is happening? Any scuttlebutt? Well, you know, uh, unfortunately, you know, I do not uh, have access to Doug Ford's back room, where <laughs> you know his insider friends uh, seem to be pulling the strings and making decisions. Uh, so, you know, I, I can't really speak as to why. We do know that uh, during the election campaign, he said that he was dead set against these types of sites, and it makes one wonder whether this is just more of the same. It is perplexing, especially uh, given that the other site, which is proposed for, I believe it's 241 Simcoe Street, uh, seems to not be under any any questions. That's not under review. Uh, there's even, uh, as Dr. Mackey said earlier today, the idea that p- perhaps the province is fine with making the temporary site a permanent one. So it just really does make you wonder what's going on at uh, 446 York Street. What's, what's the issue there? Um, there is also a statement that's come down from the province that our news room got uh, from from the, the, the government saying that uh, London has apparently applied for a mobile site permit and our, our discussions with the health unit has have not indicated that there's no official application for that any any insight on that well, obviously, they're trying to change the channel on this bad news uh, of them meddling with London City Council's uh, decisions that have, you know, engaged with uh, a great deal of consultation. You know, it's uh, it's them trying to to <laughs> again change the news. We we see this government is is backpedaling on decisions. They're interfering in local city council matters and listening to their uh, rich insider friends and simply putting the the needs of vulnerable Ontarians at risk. I think one of the other things that is uh, upsetting for, obviously, the people who have worked on this project uh, and also our city councillors um, at the local level and in you yourself as a, as a provincial representative, you, you hear feedback from uh, your community stakeholders. It's this idea that there's a lot of instability, that uh, as Councillor Pelosa said, you know, kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop sometimes uh, because you're not sure of what's going to happen next. Yes, sure, there's a plan potentially in place, but that apparently could change as it, as it seems to have today. Most definitely. You know, we've seen this, uh, this government careen from one uh, bad decision to the next. You know, they, they proposed 21 overdose prevention sites, which is nowhere near enough to deal with the crisis that is happening in our, within our province. And then they backpedaled on that, funding only 15 and, and indicating that they will possibly open six in the future. London has had a model uh, that the province has studied. Uh, we have excellent people here in the community. We have a very supportive community as well. Uh, really, Doug Ford should be spending a little bit more time in London and learning before making reckless decisions like overriding the decision of London City Council. 
you know, one of the things that I, I can appreciate that it's not easy for a government uh, to look at, at a list of priorities and, you know, and I'm sure that they, I hope that they would acknowledge that this is a worthwhile endeavor. I mean, uh, depending on where you sit on the political spectrum, maybe maybe you have different feelings about what you hope that they would say on that. Um, but I just, I feel like if you have an objection to a program, fine, but say specifically what it is, back it up with your reasons for it. Absolutely. You know, because this, I mean, as you said, uh, we have the data, we have evidence from local officials who are saying these sites are saving lives. And this ultimately, this case, even if they put it over to the the temporary site becoming permanent, it's going to cause delays in terms of being able to make these places fully functional. And and that, that causes issues for people's health. Most definitely. You know, at the heart of this issue, people are suffering and people are dying. Addiction does not care about your postal code. It does not care about your family. It does not care about your bank account, but it will ruin all of those things. And this government uh, likes to pat itself on the back for their considerations of finances, yet they're somehow spending $5 billion more (laughs) than the last government. But if you take a look at the numbers... Saving people uh, from opioid addiction is a savings to the entire province. Mm-hmm. You know, it, I, I hate to be so cold as to render human life into numbers, but uh, this is something that will save our system by reaching these people and helping them live their best life. Now, where do we go from here? Because obviously, there's still we're in a bit of a shock state, I guess. Because even if even if you weren't necessarily totally on board with the project, uh, in, if you were a member of the of the public or whatever, but you expected it to move forward, that was the plan. Uh, now we're in a bit of flux. What happens next? And and from your perspective as an MPP, where do you go from here uh, at Queens Park? What happens? Well, you know, what, uh, with, with Doug Ford uh, backpedaling on a decision by our local city council, he's forced, uh, something, he's forced people to, do, to reduplicate their efforts to start at square one, to begin a consultation process that should not be happening. Again and again, we see Doug Ford putting the interests of, of his wealthy insider friends ahead of the needs of people in London, people who need our help, vulnerable Ontarians and, and more. Well, I, for one, am going to be very interested to see if we have uh, any more concrete answers uh, to the questions that are being asked by uh, our newsroom, certainly of the government, as to why this decision has been made. Why now? What's the reason? Uh, I'm interested to see what's going to happen, as I'm sure you are. And I have an inkling that this is going to come up in question period in the next uh, few days. I think you might be right, (laughs) Jess. Stay tuned. (laughs) Well, Terrence, thank you for your time this afternoon. And uh, I'm sure we will be in touch uh, as this story develops and, and we learn more. Thanks again for your time. Well, thank you, Jess. Have a great day. You as well. Thanks. So that's the latest. We've heard from local city politicians. We have now heard from a local um, member of provincial parliament about this situation, as we heard from Terence Kernahan saying that this is, oh yeah, probably going to end up in question period at Queen's Park this week, as I'm sure it would. Uh, yeah, it's a very interesting question, and you can rest assured that uh, 980 CFPL and the newsroom here we're going to continue to follow this story because it's one that certainly, uh, no matter where you land on this issue, how you feel about it, for whatever reason, it's it's one that is sparking opinions. And, and we're going to keep talking about it because it's important to the health of our community. And uh, yeah, we're going to keep following it, try and get as many answers as we can for you. So we need to take a quick break coming up here for the 1.30 News with Jacqueline LaBelle. She's going to get you filled in on all the comings and goings of the day. And there's a lot on the go today, including the release of the uh, report 
into missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls that happened this morning. And uh, we're going to talk about that in greater detail with Lori Campbell from the Waterloo Indigenous Education Centre. She's the director. And uh, we're going to get her reaction to what came out this morning in that report in Gatineau. Stay with us on London Live on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the program on this Monday afternoon. It is beautiful out there. So much sunshine. But it is a little cool. Like I said earlier, we're sitting at 11 degrees right now. Actually, no, we popped up to 12. So that's a slight improvement. (laughs) Not exactly the weather you expect in June, but that's okay. We're getting there. The rest of the forecast for the week looks pretty good. So the... There is light at the end of this weather tunnel, if you will. It's going to get better. Just keep that in mind. At least it's no longer minus 20 with like 10 centimeters of snow on the ground. Let's not think back to that. We're in shoes and flip-flops now rather than boots and parkas. So that is good. Well, we have had a very busy show thus far. We're only about like half an hour in, but the hits keep on coming. So we're going to just keep rolling here because it is a big news day in uh, the city and also across the country. Um, this next topic is one that has been uh, on the radar in the news world for quite some time. The inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls has been going on for several years now. Uh, and today they released the final report into it. It has more than 200 recommendations. And I'll just read you a little bit of uh, one of the, the news stories from today. Now, you've heard this throughout the morning with uh, Jake Jeffrey and also with Jacqueline LaBelle now in the middays coming up into the afternoons. Uh, but here's here's just for anyone who hasn't heard it. The chief commissioner of the inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women says today they are holding up a mirror to Canada. Marion Buller made the remark at an emotional ceremony today marking the formal release of findings from the inquiry that examined root causes of the violence against Indigenous women and girls. The much-anticipated report, which contains more than 200 recommendations to multiple levels of government, calls violence against First Nation, Métis and Inuit women and girls a form of genocide and a crisis. Buller called for true equality for Indigenous people and called on all Canadians to be part of the solution. It's a big day. And this will have repercussions uh, for all of us in this country, as it should. Uh, Joining me on the line now to talk more about the importance of this report, what it means, and how we move forward is Lori Campbell. She's the director of the Waterloo Indigenous Education Centre, and she's on the line with me now. Lori, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us this afternoon. It's obviously uh, a very important day in Canada and uh, for our Indigenous peoples. Yes, thank you for having me on the air. So I guess let's rewind a little bit to this morning. And as the report was being presented, it was about a two-hour ceremony in Gatineau. Uh, The Prime Minister was there. There were hundreds of people on site uh, there to bear witness to the discussion of this report and it being officially unveiled to the public. What was your reaction to hearing the statements? Uh, Marion Buller, the Chief Commissioner of the the Inquiry, she spoke. Uh, What did you take away from this morning's events? Yeah, I think, you know, I think this morning's events were um, extremely important to bring about closure of what's been a very long and difficult um, uh, inquiry. And I think the way that the ceremony this morning was done in ceremony um, and led by Indigenous peoples provided a lot of meaning for Indigenous peoples around the inquiry. I would imagine so. And, and you know, having this 
this process of the inquiry. It's been a grueling a number of years that it's been ongoing uh, for the, all of the families who have testified and shared their truth and their experience. Um, as you said, this was kind of a marking of closure for that. Yes, exactly. And, and it has been, you know, it has since we've, we've known. There's been lots in the media over the last few years about the inquiry, and there's been lots of bumps in the road and, and lots of changeover of staff. And um, I think, uh, you know, in the last year, we, it seems to have smoothed itself out and seems to have been able to be um, taken care of in an Indigenous way. And that was really what the families were looking for. And so I think, um, I think that just brought about a, a good way to bring closure to it. Certainly. And uh, one of one of the comments made by uh, Marianne Buller was that this the, today, the report and uh, in the discussion of it, it's holding up a mirror to Canada. How do you think the report uh, will, I guess, move forward now and, and how will it change, I guess, discussion of reconciliation? How will it change reconciliation, in your opinion? Right. And that's the big question, right? You know, I mean, $92 million invested in doing this National Inquiry. Um, thousands of people spoken to between victims themselves, families of victims, uh, experts. Um, and the big question is, is you know, if nothing is done about it, um, if nothing is done with the calls for justice, then um, I'm not sure really where that leaves us. But the, the truth will be in um, who is going to take up uh, the calls for justice. And in the calls for justice, there's room for everybody, just everyday Canadians. There's individual calls for justice, but also through all of the other service providers, healthcare providers, educators, um, federal, provincial, territorial governments, and, and media is in there as well, right? And so, um, you know, the, the fact that uh, this is being broadcast and, and the closing ceremonies is being broadcast, that's part of the reconciliation and uh, what we need to have happen. Certainly, it shows a, a respect um, I would hope that, you know, by, as you said, you know, having it be done in the Indigenous tradition and being Indigenous-led, uh, it's about starting to honour more those traditions and the place of our Indigenous people instead of uh, allowing our, our systems to continue the discrimination that has been built into them, as per this report, as it said. Uh, so it's, it's, it marks a nice change. It's nice to see the community that's been uh, sidelined and uh, just discriminated against being able to come through and lead on this. Yes, and I think that is a significant piece to it, and that's a significant piece to the reconciliation overall. Um, you know, um, indig- as Indigenous peoples being able to um, think and be Indigenous and um, come to solutions and have community conversations and, and uh, work um, with uh, other Canadians um, in a way that is meaningful for Indigenous peoples and in a way that's meaningful for the rest of Canada um, without one sort of taking over, uh, you know, telling how the other side how to do it. And I think that's really where we can get to some really meaningful reconciliation and moving together collectively in a good way. One of the things that's uh, stuck out in my mind as I've, I've read some of the coverage from this morning um, in talking about this report, it has 200 or more than 200 recommendations uh, to multiple levels of government, calls uh, violence against First Nation, Métis and Inuit women and girls a form of genocide and a crisis. To me, this is, as we've kind of already said, it's, it's really shining a light on the issue and 
um, the the quote that kind of comes to mind from Heather Heyer that's, uh, you know, come up over the last couple of years, if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. And this, to me, this mm-hmm. report is a watershed moment in Canadians and this entire this entire country and all of our peoples to pay attention. This is this is it. This is the moment. You can no longer hide your head in the sand uh, because now it's all laid bare right there for you to see. This is our this is our issue and we need to work together on it. Right, and 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 I think you know that that's exactly it. I think if um, people are um, not saying that they don't know or don't understand, it's really that people are actually turning to um, not wanting to know or not wanting to believe. And and I think you know, there's uh, I I really hope that uh, with uh, in light of what's come out, that people will take the time to even read um, the the summary of the inquiry. Um, and really put some thought into that and to connect with that and then to think about um, the calls to justice and how we can enact those to really make some change because um, if we don't, I think nationally we're you know we're headed for uh, you know we uh, an even larger crisis. And so what would you like to see, I guess, happen from now on, on here on out, if you will, Lori? I mean, we've talked about how uh, we don't want to see the recommendations sit on the shelf. People need to pay attention to them. Um, and we hope that our institutions will move forward. What do you see as being a, a really substantive next step? What could happen next that you would say, OK, this looks like it's promising? Yeah, I think really what I would like to see next is, is like I mentioned, like people to actually look at the recommendations and believe that the recommendations are there as a response to the information that was and the stories that were shared during all of um, the testimonies. And just look at the recommendations and find a piece of that that fits for you personally in your life, within your family, to have conversation within your workplace or within the organization that you work, and to push forward so that, uh, you know, some of these calls to justice are met. And some of them are, you know, fairly, um, you know, aren't terribly hard uh, to do. And, and, you know, when one of them, for example, was about, you know, having access to public transportation um, so that Indigenous women aren't having to walk along, uh, you know, in the country on, on the roads by themselves in the dark, that we can actually have access to public transportation again. And so um, things like that at the government level of bringing back the Greyhound, for example, would be a solution to that. Absolutely, yeah, and as you've said, it's not terribly difficult to find solutions to some of those some of those issues. I hope we see a lot more of that type of discussion, a really a concerted effort to look at what we can do now and what can be done down the road in in reasonable time. Um, Lori, mm-hmm. how will this report, I guess, maybe change the way? Um, the Waterloo Indigenous Education Centre does things. Are you anticipating any, uh, I guess, any changes to your programming or how will you maybe incorporate it into, into, your, into your work there? Yeah, I would think it would be something that I will want to bring to the forefront about educating because generally what I find, um, the University of Waterloo and in the KW area in particular, is people have a lot of questions and people um, do want to um, help and do want to learn and do want to know what it is that they can do to help, um, you know, make change. And so part of that and part of my role in, in, at the university is to help provide that education so that people can take the next best steps. And so I would see some of it uh, coming out in that way. And I also teach in our Indigenous Studies program, and, and uh, I can see, you know, meeting with students 
and, um, you know, helping them to learn also about this and, and understand what uh, the calls to justice mean and, and, and how we got to where we are today. Absolutely. Well, Lori, thank you so much for your time today on this day of all days. I know that it's uh, a very um, emotional one and it means a lot for our Indigenous peoples and, and for the rest of the country as well to, to start sitting up and really taking notice of what's going on. So thank you for sharing your insight and your time today. All right. Thank you so much. Certainly a big day across Canada, and uh, there are still discussions going on uh, right now in the Ottawa area in Gatineau, where the commissioners of the report uh, are taking questions from the media. So this is going to be uh, a report that we all need time to unpack and to ask the right questions about and to read and really do our due diligence with this. It's important. It's important for this entire country and to uh, make sure that our Indigenous people know that we're listening and that we care and that we want to improve things and and move forward on reconciliation. And again, thank you very much to Lori Campbell, who is the director of the Waterloo Indigenous Education Centre, for taking the time to come on and uh, share her thoughts about this and, and her insight. We need to take a quick break. When we come back, our focus will shift over the pond to England, the UK, where the President of the United States is making a state visit. <laughs> We will talk with global correspondent Redmond Shannon, who is in London uh, right now covering all the comings and goings of the trip. We will be right back with all of that after this break. We'll be back on London Live. Welcome back. You are indeed listening to London Live. Mike Stubbs is on vacation today and tomorrow. He will be back with you on Wednesday. So I'm filling in in the interim. They've let me onto this side of the talk booth once more. So usually I'm sitting over where producer Kelly Wong is. She's she's keeping an eye on that side of the booth for me, keeping me on track. As always, she is lovely and she's doing a great job. So thank you very much, Kelly. And uh, yeah, we've had a busy show so far. We're coming up to the uh, the top of the hour and uh, we've dealt with uh, issues in London and uh, Canadian issues as well with the, the report into uh, missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. And now we're shifting our focus to an inter- international topic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's one that's uh, garnering a lot of attention, as always, because whenever the president of the United States says anything, there's always a lot of attention paid. Uh, President Donald Trump is on a state visit to the United Kingdom. He's been uh, he's been there since early this morning. And I mean, there's been lots of lots of attention paid, as I said, uh, in the lead up to this trip. Um, and to talk more about what's going on, what's happened before the trip, what's happening now, uh, we have Redmond Shannon, who is a global news correspondent who's based in London, and he's on the line with me now. Redmond, thank you so much for taking some time to chat with us today. It is a busy day for you in London. It is a busy day, Brent. a busy day for the Queen and the President as well. So lots, lots going on here. But uh, a lot of events on, on the first day of this three-day visit. This is really the day, Jess, where it's all about pomp and ceremony with so much going on. Absolutely. And it seems that, uh, you know, the fireworks kicked off even before the president had really landed in the UK. There was uh, a bit of controversy over some comments made regarding the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan. And also there were some shots taken at the Duchess of Sussex. It seems like it's been eventful already. Well, surprise, surprise. It's Donald Trump, so I guess it's, uh, it is no surprise. But yes, he had not even landed this morning in Air Force One at Stansted Airport in London, and he fired off a couple of tweets aimed at the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, who is a long-time critic of Donald Trump, and they have exchanged barbs before. On this occasion, uh, Donald Trump 
called Sadiq Khan a stone-cold loser who should look after crime in his own city. And really, you could perhaps trace this huge back to the previous visit of Donald Trump when he, when uh, Mayor Sadiq Khan sanctioned the use of that baby Trump blimp that floated above the city. He sanctioned it again for use on this occasion, saying it's uh, part of freedom of speech and freedom of expression here. He is, although a uh, well-known uh, critic of Donald Trump, and is boycotting the state banquet tonight, so the mayor will not be at that. So it is uh, Donald Trump has criticized Khan before, and then not only had uh, Trump criticized Khan, but shortly after Trump landed in the grounds of Buckingham Palace, the mayor himself posted a video online, pre-recorded, pre-prepared video, in conjunction with Elle magazine to talk about gender equality and women's rights in which the mayor of London said that only weak men are afraid of strong women. So you do wonder whether or not we're going to have further to and fro between the mayor and the president over the coming days. Certainly sounds like there is lots of ammunition for it. I wanted to ask you if the, if the Trump baby blimp was going to make an appearance. So it sounds like it's going to be there at some point. It's been authorized. Um, take me through, I guess, the rest of the events today. Uh, President Trump was at the palace to, to meet the queen. Uh, how was how the rest of the day rolling out? Yes, so the, the Trumps then uh, have head, headed to uh, Westminster Abbey. And uh, the Duke of York, Prince Andrew, is hosting them there, uh, giving them a tour where uh, the president is laying a wreath uh, in honor of the unknown soldier. So after that event, uh, the Trumps head to Clarence House to have tea with the Prince of Wales and the Duchess of Cornwall, Charles and Camilla, and then have a little bit of time off before really the big event of today, which is the state banquet tonight at Buckingham Palace. And a lot of eyes and ears will be on the speeches that are generally made at these events. The Queen expected to speak. President Trump expected to speak. What will he say? What will she say? Uh, it'll be very interesting to hear that. But we do know that not only have certain political leaders like the mayor and leaders of the opposition here in the UK boycotted that banquet, but we know that uh, the American princess herself, Meghan Markle, the Duchess of Sussex, will not be in attendance now. Obviously, she has recently given birth, so that is um, a good reason why she might not be there. But Uh, she is, I suppose, you could say, a notable absentee. Certainly, yes. I think, uh, as you've said, uh, uh, there will be a lot of, I guess, eyes very carefully watching the the rest of the festivities today and the rest of the trip and and what's said and what isn't said, who's there, who's not there. Um, I I wanted to ask you, the last time that Trump was in the UK for a visit, it wasn't technically a state visit, correct? It was because there wasn't this, the big banquet didn't happen. What's what's the difference between that visit and this one? Why is, is there so much more ceremony placed on this one? Simply, um, Jess, because uh, a state visit involves the Queen directly giving the invitation to another head of state. So the Queen is the host on this occasion, rather than it being upon invitation or agreement with the government. So that is the big difference, and it's not very often that it happens. Only once or twice a year does the Queen host a state visit in the UK. She has been a monarch uh, for 67 years, and in that time, 112 state visits have happened. So it is quite unusual, uh, relatively speaking, and only three U.S. presidents have been uh, hosted for a state visit, most recently the Obamas in 2011. So uh, it's quite a special event, a lot of pomp and ceremony involved in it. And uh, you can imagine that someone of the character of Donald Trump will quite enjoy the uh, very regal affair uh, surrounding him today. 
Certainly, I can only imagine. And uh, I, I've watched a, a couple of specials that have been put on by the BBC and CBC here in Canada. They've they've posted them here about what goes into a state dinner. And and I yes, the the procedure and the pomp and the circumstance will just be off the charts. I'm sure. Yeah, and it's uh, I suppose very few uh, nations do it uh, like uh, the British do it. Uh, such a a history of these types of events that, uh, and Donald Trump, of course, with his uh, Scottish roots, his uh, his uh, Scottish mother, his British roots, will uh, it's a, a special visit for him. So it's um, it is a very uh, big deal. There's a lot to it. Um, it. Everything has to be absolutely perfect. But the security operation that we've observed here, seeing um, the amount of police involved, even the security operation from the U.S. Secret Service side, as we all know, is immense. So combine those two, and it is uh, quite a spectacle. Certainly, and then that spectacle is going to travel a little bit during during this trip. Uh, there were discussions of initially having meetings in Dublin, but that was scrapped, and, and so Trump will be spending some time at his golf course. Yeah, that's right. So uh, Donald Trump uh, will be... Uh, the, so I suppose to roll back, we have tomorrow and Wednesday is the end of the UK state visit. So tomorrow will be focused very much on political and business meetings. You'll meet Theresa May bit of a lame dog prime minister, but nonetheless, he will meet with her. He will meet U.S. and British business leaders. And uh, then on Wednesday, he heads to Portsmouth on the south coast of England. And that, Portsmouth was the main departing point of Canadian, U.S. and British forces for D-Day on June 5th, 1944. So there will be a major event there. Justin Trudeau will be there as well. And then on June 6th, he and all the other leaders head to Normandy for the D-Day events there. But on the night of June 5th and 6th, Donald Trump will be based on the west coast of Ireland, which doesn't sound very convenient, but Trump said he's doing it because it's convenient. Needless to say, I'm sure he might squeeze in a round of golf while he's based at his golf resort in Ireland. He did. He is meeting with the Irish Prime Minister. There was a lot of controversy about where, or a lot of talk about where they would meet whether or not the Irish Prime Minister would go to Trump's resort. That has uh, passed by. They found a sort of a middle ground. So, as always with Trump, there's a lot of talk, a lot of posturing, and uh, it's, uh, there's never a quiet moment when Trump visits anywhere, to be honest. Absolutely, that's true. And uh, I, I just noted when you when you meant, uh, mentioned um, perhaps chatting with uh, Theresa May, what do you think the chances are that he might sit down with Boris Johnson? He's had some kind words for him and, and the possibility of, of him taking over as prime minister. Yes, indeed. Well, they are mutual fans uh, at this point, although they haven't always been so. When Boris Johnson was mayor of London, he was also very critical of Donald Trump. So, but they seem to patch that up because Donald Trump has more or less unofficially endorsed Boris Johnson as his favoured candidate to become the next prime minister. One of thirteen candidates now to replace Theresa May. They made there are little gaps in the schedule here that could include a meeting with Johnson, could even include a, a meeting with Nigel Farage, the leader of the Brexit Party, known uh, ally of Trump as well. But none of that has been confirmed or denied as yet. We will find out more tomorrow, most likely, as to whether or not those types of meetings will happen. It seems like very much of uh, President Trump's schedule, no matter where he is, is, is a bit on, on the seat of his pants. You never know what he might say or who he might meet next. Uh, well, Redmond, thank you so much for your time today uh, in chatting with us and uh, bringing us the very latest from this very interesting state trip by the U.S. president to the U.K. Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome, Jess. Have a good day. Bye. All right. Well, now that we've found out what's happening today in the UK with US President Donald Trump, 
when we come back from the news, which we have to go to like right now because Jacqueline LaBelle is standing by, we're going to talk about last night. What was last night, you ask? The Raptors, game two of the NBA Finals. We're going to talk to uh, someone locally who has some great insight on basketball and all the buzz that's been created by the Raptors run here in the NBA Finals. So all that and more coming up on London Live right after the news. Welcome back to the program. It is London Live on 980 CFPL. Mike Stubbs is on vacation today and tomorrow, so I'm filling in for him. They've let me sit on this side of the booth again. They've not locked me out, which is a good sign. So far, so good. This is excellent. I'm happy to be here with all of you. We've had a busy show so far. We've been talking about things happening today uh, in the news here at home in London and around the world. But I want to cast our eyes and our minds back now to last night. Did you watch the Raptors game? Game two of the NBA Finals between We the North and Golden State? I did. I watched it. I am by no means a basketball aficionado. I am not a pro. I'm just like, I just enjoy it. I watch it. I get excited about it. I certainly would not be able to uh, give you a critical, uh, I guess, rundown of, of how the game went. I'd be like, yeah, it was pretty exciting. Whereas I know there were a lot of people, a lot of my friends actually, who were pretty upset with the loss last night, which is, I mean, it's fair. I mean, no one likes it when their team loses, for sure. And plus, it's it's a precarious situation. Now they have to go back to Oakland and play Golden State on their home turf. It's scary. You never want to do that. But it's something you got to do. Now, something that I have found really cool is the fact that everyone is really getting into this. Uh, I know, uh, you know, like even my mom and I, like, as I said, I don't really watch a lot of basketball. It's not usually my jam, but it's been a lot of fun watching as the Raptors have progressed through the playoffs. And my mom is the same way. She's like, yeah, I don't really like basketball that much before we started watching <laughs> one of the uh, final games with the with the 76ers uh, in the last round. And uh, by the end of that game, we were both yelling, Kawhi, go Kawhi. We were very excited. So like the Raptors are making fans out of out of everyone, which is really neat. There's a lot of a lot of buzz growing about these NBA finals and there's a lot of camaraderie. And so to talk a little bit more about that. I reached out to uh, Ramblers London Basketball and Erin Howarth, who is the current under 10 girls coach. And she joins me on the line now to talk more about what's going on with Raptors Nation. Erin, thanks so much for joining us. It's been a very interesting last 24 hours in uh, Raptors Nation, I guess. I don't know. Are we calling it Raptors Nation? There's, I feel like it's uh, like all of Canada is behind this team. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks, Jess, for having me on. I totally agree. I love the We the North branding. It makes it feel like all it's a Canadian team, not just a Toronto or an Ontario team. It's all of Canada, and we're all cheering for the Raptors. Absolutely. So first of all, let me get your take on uh, last night's game. I watched most of it. Uh, I, I missed the last couple of minutes. I was in transit. I was driving, so I had to, had to you know, leave it where it was. Uh, but what did you make of the, of the loss last night? Oh, man, it was a bit of a heartbreaker. I mean, they they were working so hard on defense, and they climbed back out of the of the hole that they were in. And the last minute, we thought, oh, yeah, they, they might be able to take this. And uh, unfortunately, um, it didn't swing that way for the Raptors. It's too bad, and and it's something that uh, you know everyone is really getting behind them as we as we said. And I joked last night while I was on Twitter. I was I was working out while I was watching most of the game. I was on a treadmill, and I just envisioned myself being so excited by something that I'd like fall off. You know, <laughs> people are people are really getting into this. It is. You know what? It is so exciting. There is 
so much buzz around. It's interesting because even just this morning, um, an email came through for my kids' school, and they're having a Raptors jersey day on Wednesday. So it, I think that there's so much buzz around. We see that in um, in in the kids in the the clinics that I'm running, and it's the first thing that the the girls want to talk about. And especially after Clyde made the big shot against the box and and it was there's lots of chatter and lots of talk and it's really exciting that was my very next question was how uh the kids in the ramblers organization are uh you know are, are taking to this are they trying to like imitate the shots that the that the guys are making like what's the what's the vibe like out on the court oh yeah for sure i mean it's in in fun and then also the conversations around the games and how the, how they're doing and some of the strategy around it absolutely i have at home, I have three kids, and even my my middle guy, uh, who's seven, is is practicing the corner quiet shot, and he even like sits down like Kawhi does and wait and watches to see if it goes in, and it's pretty fun. It's a lot of fun. It's sort of like a master class, right? Watching these games because you've got Kawhi Leonard, you know, uh, Fred Van Fleet, like so many fantastic players, and then on the other team, Golden State. I mean, Steph Curry. I mean, this is this is amazing. You've got the best players in in the league in the world in some cases, and they're right here in Toronto for a, a good chunk of these games. Oh yeah, it's, I mean, it's great, and the, to see the players compete and to see the adjustments that happen on the court, and also. The coaches, I mean, such two phenomenal coaches and the adjustments that they make and how uh, what that looks like on the court for, for the players. It is, it's really exciting. You see when they do the fans in the crowd, the, the, the different uh, sort of the celebs that are in the crowd that are getting out to watch and to support. It's, it's pretty cool. Absolutely. Um, now, what do you think the chances are that you'll see maybe like an uptick in registrations for kids wanting to play basketball as as uh, you know as the series winds down? Uh, do you think you'll have more kids coming out for the summer and and for the next season? Yeah, you know what? I think that's just a great question. And I think that the bottom line is that increased engagement in the sport is what we want. We want more kids being involved and being excited about it. I know for Ramblers, when you're looking at their summer camps and their house leagues. They're often filled within the first day the registrations are. So they get lots of kids that are kind of coming out that are interested, that are wanting to be part of the support. I think that right now what you're seeing is a lot of the fanfare that that goes with that and and some of those types of uh, purchases. um, You know, uh, Ramblers could run in many of their divisions. They could run two teams in each of their competitive divisions. It's just more limited by the facilities and, and getting coaches in. So I think that the, the desire and the want is there and, and we're uh, trying to make that work. It's funny, eh? Because in Canada, we've seen a real increase in um, soccer enrollment, different sports. People are branching out. It's not just hockey anymore. Certainly, that's very popular still. It's, you know, the winter national sport. Um, But we're seeing some more diversity in terms of the activities that kids are getting involved in. And sounds certainly like basketball is right up there in the mix. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think that that is really representative. In If you look at some of the higher level playing that's happening in the Canadians, if you look at the men's NCAA tournament this year, there's lots of Canadians in the tournament. If you look at the number of Canadians that are making the NBA and the WNBA and, and local great players like Kia Nurse, and, and you see that there's these role models that these Canadian kids are now able to look up to, and, uh, and it's fantastic. 
Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I guess how would you say, because you, you played yourself basketball down in the States, uh, from what I've heard, a little birdie tells me. And how would you say, uh, I guess, perception of basketball has changed from when you were playing to now in, in, in Canada and, and just in, in how we look at it? You know, I think this is a really interesting question because it coincides a lot with the timeline of having the Raptors as a professional team to be able to get behind and to be able to watch. And and I would say that there's just, it's it really has exploded in terms of the interest, in terms of the engagement, in terms of we have great athletes. Canada has always had exceptional athletes, but now you're right in terms of where they're choosing to, what sports they're choosing in, to go into. And, uh, and I think it's just great that basketball is, is a sport that lots of people are looking at. All right. So last question, any predictions for the rest of the series and uh, be honest, what, who do you think is going to come out on top here? Oh, I, I mean, I got to say the Raptors. I want the Raptors to win. I have to. I have to say the Raptors. I think that it's it'll be uh, tricky. Certainly, Golden State is such a phenomenal team, such a phenomenal coach. I think that it will really depend on uh, like Kevin Durant if if he's coming back or not, and also what happened last night with Clay Thompson if he's back or not, because that can certainly change the dynamic of the Golden State team. But I, I got to say, Raptors. I believe. We the North, absolutely, all the way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Aaron, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. We appreciate chatting with you, and go Raptors, go. Yes, absolutely. Go Raptors, go. All right. We see what happens in Golden State for the next game. Raptors are flying out this morning, apparently. So may the basketball gods be with them. Raptors, you can do it. We believe in you. We the North. (laughs) We need to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about a new report from Deloitte, the consultancy firm. And this new report is talking about the Canadian market for edibles. That's like pot edibles and how much that's worth. It's staggering. It's a big number. We'll talk about that coming up on London Live. Welcome back. Guess what? We have a caller. I'm very excited. Bob is on the line and I believe they would like to share some thoughts on, on the basketball that we were just talking about on the Raptors. Bob, how's it going? Hey, good. Just how about yourself? Not too bad. What are your thoughts on, on the Raptors? What do you want to say? Well, firstly, you're doing a good job sitting in for Mike there. Thank you so much. I very much appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, well, you're welcome. Uh, yeah, you know, I'm not a big basketball fan, uh, but I'd like to see the Raptors win, you know, being the only Canadian team and all that. Mm. But uh, I don't know. I... Just the history of that of that Warriors team. What they won the last three yeah. out of four championships, and I think when I watched that last game, I started to see the big gunners on uh, Golden State really start to click. You know, yeah. you can just see them getting into this rhythm here, and and you know they they came back, stormed back uh, to take the lead there last night, and. Uh, I don't know. I mean, these guys, it seems to me, man, they just don't miss too many of those three-pointers. No. Like, they got a lot of shooters on that team, and, and they're and they, they're accurate, and, and they're consistent, too. Uh, uh, 
I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm not feeling for the Raptors right now. Yeah. Like, I'll, I'll, like honestly. But, uh, hey, you know, though, on the brighter side, the Boston Bruins are doing pretty good, eh? <laughs> so, throw uh, that out there, right? Bob, <laughs> I, I can't support you on the Bruins. I can't. My mother would probably disown me. Well, like, not too many this, not too many people in this neck of the woods are, are supportive That's of, true. of that team anyways. I mean, uh, yeah, I'm pretty much a minority wherever I go, <laughs> wearing my colors. So. I'll tell you this. Neighbors uh, of my parents, who I've known since I was, oh, God, not even like 12 or something like that, they are diehard Boston fans. So they are with you. They are very excited by uh, the latest developments and how they're doing. But uh, all the Habs fans and all the Leafs fans out there are are none too pleased right now. Well, it's far from over, but, uh, you know, they... They, they they ran Bennington out of net last night or the lot on Saturday night. So when you take your number one starter goalie and you and you and they, they pull him off, that's a good thing. Mm. He's a young guy, you know, and uh, we'll see how he bounces back. I mean, he's pretty. He seems pretty calm, cool, and collective, and uh, if he can gather himself. But I fully expect the Blues tonight. They're just going to come out and they're going to play. They're going to throw everything at the Bruins, and I think it's going to be uh, a real physical game here tonight. Uh, and but I think you know St. Louis, they've got to watch what they're doing because there's a fine line. That team plays very aggressive physical game, and they got called on that one a couple of games ago, right? They got the suspension, uh, mm-hmm. their player, and they took they're taking a lot of penalties, and that's a dangerous thing to do. And and honestly, you know what it's reminded me of What's back that? in the days when Montreal would beat Boston. Ever, just like ninety nine percent of the time, the Habs would beat the Bruins. Miss those days, <laughs> and, and yeah, and, and the thing why they did it is is uh, the Bruins would play that real heavy aggressive game and not be smart enough not to be overly aggressive and take penalties. Where Montreal would just sort of walk away from it, and not get engaged, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 the Habs would suck them into that game all the time. It was very frustrating as a Bruin fan for years, like decades actually. Uh, like uh, I think the Bruins have been in this cup for uh, 20 times now, mm. and I uh, I'm I'm not 100 percent sure, but I'm going to take a guess and I'm going to say the Habs <laughs> probably beat them at least 10 of those 20 uh, <laughs> uh, under those conditions. So I see a flip in terms of the Bruins how they're approaching it. They're the team now that is not getting overly aggressive. Like even that 2011 team, they played on that edge. And, and uh, you know, they could have thrown their opportunity away against Vancouver, but they've changed their kind of uh, their team makeup and that a bit in terms of that. But, you know, it's not over yet. Uh, St. Louis is a good team. They're there for a reason, and, uh, and we'll see what happens. But, uh, you know, hey, I'd like to see the Raptors get it. Yeah, but, that would be man, good. Jeez, uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. That, that Warriors team, I don't watch a lot of basketball, like I say, but watching those guys uh, on, uh, last night, I'm like, wow, these yeah, they are smooth. They're, uh, yeah, they're smooth. I can see why they've won the last three out of four. Right? But anyway, yeah. we'll see what happens. We will indeed. And, and uh, Bob, thanks so much for your call this afternoon. I appreciate it. It was great chatting with you and uh, getting your thoughts on uh, all the series that are up in the air right now. It's certainly a stressful time for sports fans. All right. Have a good day. You too. Thank you. Now, we also have another caller. My goodness. We've got Matt on the line. Matt, what are your thoughts? Are, are we talking Raptors or what are we talking about? We're talking Raptors. I'm going to keep it very brief. Okay. I've followed the season very closely, uh, you know, since uh, the start in October, watching the Raptors closely and simultaneously watching the West Coast teams like the Warriors. What happened last night was the Raptors allowed the Warriors to take a, a double-digit lead. In the past series against the Bucks, the Raptors were able to get give away the lead, then retake it, give it away, then retake it. 
The one point I'll make, they won't be able to do that against the Warriors. You cannot give the Warriors a lead of any significant amount and expect to come back. I think the Raptors learned last night that they can do that. I expect a, a big improvement in Game 3, and, and I wish them all the best. So I'd love nothing more to see them win the championship, but that's the big mistake. Do not give the Warriors a lead. Yeah, no, that's that's for sure. I mean, sage advice. I think that uh, you know, ultimately, I would I would hope that every every team that's playing doesn't really want to want to give that up. But I think that's a that's a sage point by you, Matt. That uh, you know, in the past they've been able to recover, but you really can't give Golden State an inch given uh, just how good they are. And I, I forgive me, I forget where where I saw this, where I heard it, which commentator said it. Uh, but Steph Curry has just you know changed the changed the game so much, especially in terms of like three pointers, and like you just cannot give him an inch because he will run a mile with it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so it's it's going to be really interesting to see what they do in, in Game 3, and uh, I hope, like you, that they've learned that lesson and they'll come out flying. I, I think they will, and it, it's going to be a big mental game now because obviously we see both teams can win. Now it's going to come down to the mental aspect of it, and it's a little bit disheartening to see when the Raptors went down a bit uh, how the fans began sitting on their hands. Uh, I'd, I'd rather see those Toronto fans know, keep the team upbeat at all times. And I think last night was a really a bad effect of them kind of abandoning the team for a moment there. Well, hopefully they also learn from that. And uh, next time that they're they're back in Toronto after the two in uh, in Oakland, uh, things will be a bit different. They'll have all that energy again and they'll be hopped up and uh, it'll be good. Fingers crossed anyway. They, they, I hope they're listening to you, Matt. Thank you very much. You take care, eh? You too. Thanks. Thanks. Oh. It's it's crazy times in Raptors Nation. Everyone's everyone's watching, and uh, like we were saying before, whether you are uh, a diehard fan of the sport or you're kind of new to it, like I am. I mean, I've watched it before. I love going to see uh, London Lightning games here in town. But again, I am not an aficionado, as you can tell. I'm not giving like groundbreaking commentary here. But uh, you know, it's it's just fun, and I hope that the fun continues because it's been it's been great uh, to to see the Raptors play so well and uh, just do a great job with it. Uh, we need to go for news. We need to go. So Jacqueline LaBelle has all the latest details coming up for you in the news package. And uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about playtime for adults and making sure that you're getting some downtime. And don't worry, we will get to that edibles topic with the Deloitte study. It'll just have to come up a little bit later in the half hour. So over to news. And then we're talking playtime on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the show, London Live, on your Monday afternoon. Hope you're all doing well after the weekend. It was an exciting night. Well, more so exciting for Golden State fans and for Raptors fans. We really, really took off with this Raptors topic. I just thought, oh, we'll have a chat about the buzz. And then it it took off. We got calls. It was exciting. I also got an email from James. He does not share the opinion that it was necessarily an exciting game. And I understand that. He says, were we watching the same game? Raptors couldn't drain a three for the last half. That's okay, James. That's that's fair. That's fair, I suppose. I I said up front, I'm not an aficionado, but I just enjoy it. It's it's exciting in general to watch it and see Toronto play. I'm I'm not an expert. I'm no lawyer. <laughs> I don't know. But I appreciate it because people who actually know more of 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 what it means and and the stakes, I suppose it would be very frustrating to see Toronto, you know, get a couple baskets and Golden State even up or increase their lead. So yeah, for sure, especially the last part of the game was was very frustrating when you just couldn't seem to gain any traction. But still, James, come on, 
It's fine. Actually, I'm very pleased that you emailed me. Thank you for doing that. And it's great to get your thoughts. And thank you again to Bob and to Matt, uh, our previous callers who uh, wanted to, to give their thoughts on the game and how the series is going and their hopes for game three. So, Bob, Matt, James, thanks so much. I appreciate it. Okay, so we're talking about playing a basketball game. This kind of lends nicely, uh, leads nicely, I should say, into our next segment, talking about the importance of playing for adults. Yeah. Have you thought about that? I mean, we're constantly hearing about uh, burnout now in adults and even millennials, the generation. We, we t- millennials take a lot of flack, man. We, we, we got a bad rap. People, people take a lot out on us. I'm a leading millennial, which means I'm of the older part of the generation. Um, but yeah, this, this idea that uh, we are just really tired and, you know, not as maybe motivated as we were because we're just feeling down about life and maybe in our careers and stuff like that. Well, there is a gentleman by the name of Louis Serrano, and he's in the Toronto area, and he decided to tackle this when he faced this issue himself. He is the founder of Fundamentals of Play. So F-U-N is capitalized in Fundamentals. In fact, he's the CFO, which is the chief fun officer and he joins me now on the line to talk about more of, of what he does. Lewis, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. Thanks for having me. Now, as I said off the top there, you know, we've had uh, studies and more articles about burnout in adults and uh, it, like just tons of discussion about this seeming phenomenon over the last uh, couple of years. Uh, now, you are no stranger to the idea of needing to put more fun back into our adult lives. Tell us about Fundamentals of Play and how this started for you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Fundamentals of Play is really all about turning those stats upside down. Uh, so there's, there's actual stats that in North America, we spend up to 80% plus of our time on things that don't give us joy, that don't give us meaning, that don't give us fulfillment. Um, so we fill up our calendars and our days with all this stuff that we, we think we have to do or that we've been conditioned to fill up our time with. Um, but it's, it's not the right stuff, right? And, and why can it be that we fill up our days with 80% of, of the things that give us long-term and joy and spend it with the people that give us that love and, and joy in our life as well. So Fundamentals of Play uh, is essentially it, it's to, uh, it combines play uh, in various different forms. And to me, play just means doing more of the things we love again uh, with both personal and professional development. And, and the way it started for me is, is directly related to my own story. Um, so roughly about three, four years ago, you mentioned things like burnout and, and things of that nature. That's kind of what happened to me. Um, I, was, I was living a, a fast-paced life. I was living in the corporate world. I was working in the corporate world, I should say. Um, and at the time, you know, it, it felt like the right thing for me, but at the same time, it, it it wasn't. There was a feeling within me that I knew something was off, but I didn't know what. And it took kind of everything com- came crashing down around me for me to realize that I could reinvent myself. So I lost my job. Uh, family members lost their job. I lost a relationship. Uh, kind of everything fell and crashed down around me in a matter of weeks. And And from there is when I kind of dug deep. Uh, I did a lot of personal work and, and rediscovered this powerful notion of play or of, of filling my time with 
things that matter to me. Um, and, you know, that's kind of where it all started. I started, uh, I, I continued to do improv, which is something I, I used to do in, back in the day. Um, and that really kind of got my, my thoughts going on the power of play and how it can connect to lessons in life. Um, and from there, I started developing these, these workshops for adults where I incorporated different forms of play with personal and professional development. It honestly sounds like, not to, to get too uh, poetic here or, or uh, you know, flowery, but it, it, it seems like a, a phoenix rising from the ashes. You know, like sometimes we have to hit a really tough point and, you know, rock bottom, and then we start to reevaluate things and, and we can move forward. I, I kind of say um, that often the universe, if you are in a spot where it is just, it's no longer tenable, you have to do something different. The universe forces you to make a, make a different choice and to move differently and, and figure things out. So it, it sounds like this is kind of where it came from. A hundred percent. Yeah, that's totally the case. And, and, you know, I think I already like had inklings that I, I wanted to do different things and, and lead a different life, but I didn't know what to do. And it kind of took everything falling apart for me to have that kind of blank slate opportunity. And, you know, now in hindsight, I'm so thankful that it all happened because I mean, my night, my life is night and day to what it used to be. And I'm so much happier, so much more fulfilled with what I get to do. It's amazing how uh, how things, the, it is that old saying, things happen for a reason. And, uh, you know, we may not always understand at the time, and, and you may go through a heck of a lot of uh, pain and, and uh, discomfort when things are going wrong. But in the end, uh, you know, we can often see some silver linings to it. And uh, it's it's nice to see that this is, is one of those silver linings. And now you're helping other people uh, kind of, you know, get back in touch with themselves. And uh, tell me a little bit about these workshops then, um, because you say you've, you've come up with a, a couple of different there's one for individuals, but then there's also ones for groups, right? Yeah, yeah. So I do, yeah, those are kind of the, the two main ones I do. So um, there's some that I do in Toronto. Uh, this is where I'm based. Uh, and I do kind of public play shops, I call them. So usually every month I'll have like a different theme. Um, it might be on failure or it might be on uh, having a positive mindset. And then we'll do a play shop surrounded on that theme where we're playing a whole bunch of different games related to the, the concept and the theme, and we're learning about the topics behind that with positive psychology, and we're doing art-related activities related to it. Um, and that's open to anyone and everyone. And we also just launched uh, a six-week program where uh, the same people will come every week, and we're kind of building upon each theme. Um, and then the uh, the other favorite part of my business is is the the group. So I do a lot of team team building um, play shops. So that would be for you know kind of corporate teams or uh, small to mid sized teams. I've done conferences as well. Um, but the whole premise there is to teach kind of modern day business skills through play. So things uh, such as empathy, for example or a storytelling, or how to fail better in the business world so that we can achieve success. Uh, and, and the reason I think it's so important is because the teams and, and the, the businesses that get the importance of not just play, but these modern-day business skills are the ones that I think are, are changing the demeanor of the corporate world for things like you're talking about, like things like burnout, those are real big issues. Things about mental health are real big issues now. Um, and, and the more modern and progressive companies are recognizing that things like empathy, for example, 
are such a highly valued skill for the workforce. And, you know, learning what empathy is all about and how to actually employ it in the business world can be tremendous. And to learn that through play is such a cool and fun fun way to do it. Um, so we do, like, these empathy workshops where, again, we're playing all these different um, improv games related to empathy, but then we play with this empathy toy where people are blindfolded building different objects. And it's just it's amazing. It's amazing to see it um, within the, the, the broader corporate team um, structure as well. I think that's really interesting, especially the point you made about uh, learning to fail better. I, I think that that's, that's neat. And uh, we often, you know, equate uh, not doing well at something or say a failure as like the end of the world sort of a thing. But really, it's not. It's an opportunity to learn and grow from it, even if it is very difficult to do, uh, because we have to, you know, process what went wrong and, and learn from it. It's not an easy task. Um, what would you say, Lewis, is the reaction from people when they come in first at the beginning of the session to when they leave? What's the, what's the difference? What's the change within people? Yeah, that's probably one of my favorite things. Um, I mean, it, depending on, <laughs> I guess it's the same for both public and, and corporate. Um, there's a range, right? There's a range of personalities that come to it. Um, so some of them are already kind of gung-ho right from the get-go. Um, they've either already done improv, for example, or they're just really into kind of the, the growth personal development space. So they're kind of really into it. But then there's, as you know, a whole range of personality types. So there's a whole bunch of people that are usually kind of more skeptical or maybe more reserved or um, shy at first. And what I love to see, and I see it every single time, is those walls slowly get, uh, slowly come down over the course of the, the play shop. Um, and what usually happens is they start to give themselves permission as they see other people kind of diving into the games and participating and enjoying. And usually it's the people that are most reserved at the beginning or more, most skeptical that by the end of it, they're the ones that are running around so excited, getting people involved, you know, hooting and hollering. Um, and, and that's what I love to see, kind of people just like allowing themselves to release a little bit and, and, and give themselves that permission to, to play, essentially. And um, I love to share, too. I'm actually uh, more on the introverted side versus extroverted, and, and I own a play company. So it, it's not about introverted versus, versus extroverted. It's simply about allowing yourself to kind of shine through authentically. Absolutely. And, and as you said before, the, the CFO, you are the chief fun officer of that company, which I think is a great title. <laughs> Yeah, it's, <laughs> I love signing kind of formal documents with it. That's my favorite part. Like, <laughs> okay. uh, like a 20-page formal document, and then I have to sign my title, Chief Fun Officer. <laughs> it's nice. I, I bet you it brings a smile to a lot of people's faces, and that's the whole point of this, right, is uh, learning to reconnect with uh, a little bit of whimsy and uh, just, you know, not taking life quite so seriously. Absolutely, yes. Well, Lewis, thank you so much for taking uh, the time to chat with us this afternoon about fundamentals of play, and I hope the rest of your day is fantastic. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, if you're interested in learning more about fundamentals of play, you can go to their website, and it very simply is fundamentalsofplay.ca. Couldn't be any easier than that. Now, before we go to a break, I just wanted to issue you a breaking news update. 
uh, from the Raptors discussion that we were having before. I got another email from James. He has clarified his comments. He wanted me to know uh, that his uh, his questioning of, of the game that was being watched, it was to our other caller who said that they let them have the lead. James is clarifying and saying accuracy was the problem. They had so many chances. James, thank you for your email. And uh, I appreciate when anyone, you know, wants to correct me or uh, wants to, you know, set the record straight. That's fantastic. Send me all the emails. Love it. Love interacting with everyone who's listening. Thank you so much, by the way, for listening. Uh, Mike, as as you know, is on vacation. He is back on Wednesday. So I'm with you uh, for about, ooh, what, 12 more minutes today <laughs> and then two hours tomorrow. And then Mike will be back in his rightful place on Wednesday. All right. As I said, we need to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about that edible story uh, that uh, I teed up in the last half hour. That's coming up on London Live on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the program. We have about nine minutes left in this show. I say it every time, but when I'm hosting... Like the two hours just flies by. I can't believe it, how quickly it goes every single time. Now, uh, before we go, uh, what I teed up in the last half hour, before the Raptors talk continued, which was fantastic. Loved it. So glad to hear from from our callers on this. You've got hot takes. I want to hear it. And the emails, like from James. Thank you very much for those emails. They were awesome. Um, but this, this report that I wanted to uh, discuss with you a little further is from Deloitte. And what it's basically saying is that this new study, by accounting from Deloitte, predicts the edible marijuana market in Canada will be worth $2.7 billion in its first year after edibles become legal in October. And we have a a global news wrap from reporter Robin Crawford that we're going to play for you to expand upon that a little further. It's coming in October, the legalization of edible cannabis across Canada. And Jennifer Lee with Deloitte, who did the study, says the marijuana market will expand to a whole new consumer. We see a huge trend toward health and wellness products. The reason edible is so excited is it is a broader range of products that can enter the market. Targeting people who want to use cannabis but not get high. So now you're using CBD-based products for more over-the-counter type of use cases. She says according to her research, the introduction of edibles will threaten the alcohol industry as consumers use cannabis on similar occasions. Robin Crawford, Global News. Now, I think that that uh, estimate by Deloitte in the study is is pretty spot on. Uh, I would imagine also, like in the rap that we just heard from uh, Robin Crawford, which was uh, very well done, um, one of our global colleagues, says that um, people will use edibles because they want to have they want they want to use pot or or marijuana based substances without getting high. I also think it's going to be big for people who do want to be to have like a buzz to get high, but that they don't like the idea. Of smoking, which I think will be very attractive to, as as that reports, at a whole new set of consumers. So I, honestly, like when this all rolled out, like last year, when when recreational use of, of marijuana was um, was approved and it became legalized, I was surprised that the edibles weren't included off the bat. But I also do understand that they wanted to take a staggered approach to it and blah, blah, blah. The same, I mean, you would have hoped that they would have had the brick and mortar stores open at the same time, but power is greater than me had their reasons for you know, taking the approach that they did. Um, but yeah, I, I just, I'm not surprised by hearing that number of that it's going to be worth like roughly $2.7 billion. I think there's a massive market for that. And there are probably a lot of people who don't want to be smoking, uh, who would like to, you know, responsibly, hopefully, uh, indulge in those pot products. So it'll be really interesting to see how it rolls out. 
in Ontario. I think other jurisdictions, I think BC edibles are legal now uh, and have been perhaps for a little bit longer. So I'm not entirely sure the rules on that one, but I think that is the case. But yeah, I am I am not surprised at all that this is going to be big business. I think it's, it's kind of a no-brainer, if you will. So anyway, that's an interesting little report from Global News and a study by Deloitte. Uh, so yeah, we have all of that information actually online through Global. If you want to read more about it, you can just go online and check out our website, 980cfpl.ca. Just a, just a little plug right there. <laughs> we need to take a quick break. When we come back, producer Kelly and I are going to chat about this new trend that some of you may already know about, and it's called uh, clothing rental. No, not tuxes for your prom or your wedding. Not necessarily, no. This is like full-on like outfits and services that offer up uh, the opportunity to have clothing shipped to you. You get to use it for a little while and then you ship it right back to them. Would you do it? We're going to find out more about it. We'll chat coming up on London Live. Welcome back to the program. We are in the final minutes before Jacqueline LaBelle has your news in the afternoon news wheel. Uh, before we went to break there, I told you about uh, this new trend and it's wardrobe rental services. This is, uh, I'm going to read you just a tiny snippet from the Globe and Mail article. It says, The combination of a new wave of minimalism sparked by tidying expert Marie Kondo and a growing sharing economy has spawned a fresh spin on fashion retail. So basically, you pay for a subscription where this service will send you clothing. You can try it out. You can wear it for a little bit. It depends on the service. And then you send it right back when you're done with it. Producer Kelly, what do you think of that? I think this is such an awesome idea. I don't know why I haven't thought of it before because I feel like I'm low-key into fashion, but like not really. But what a great idea. I mean, it's kind of hard to determine what kind of clothes looks good on you. So yeah. to have someone else, maybe even a stranger choose for you could mm. be really fun and really adventurous if you're into that kind of thing. Yeah. And also, this is just a fun way to kind of get out of your comfort zone and try something new. And if you like it, you can keep it after. If not, well, there's no contract. You can just send it right back. Yeah, there are actually like a ton of subscription boxes that I was aware of for beauty project, uh, products, I should say, and some jewelry um, retailers as well, where they you kind of fill out a questionnaire and say, this is your style, this is what you're looking for, and then they'll send you a bunch of stuff. Some, you keep all of the items that you pay your monthly fee for, and others, you get to keep one or two things and you send the rest back, that sort of thing. So it's like online virtual stylists, if you will, or people remotely styling you for you. It's it's kind of neat, and it's true, like especially millennials who are probably the ones doing this the most. Uh, you know, we're we're short on cash sometimes, so it's nice to be able to try out nice things, see if you really like it, and then send it back. Exactly. I love that idea so much. <gasps> I think I might even try it hey, now that I think about it. I have the details if you want to <laughs> come online and check it out. Anyway, that's a quick little description of, of online clothing sharing and that new sharing economy. So that's it from us for this afternoon on London Live. We're going to throw it over to Jacqueline LaBelle, who is ready to give you the news of the day. Coming up, we will see you tomorrow on 980 CFPL.